Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. So you know what I'm thinking about doing? Go ahead, ask me. Jim, what are you thinking about doing? Elder McClarty, what are you doing? <laughs> Apparently Steve's the only person interested in what I'm thinking about doing. In years past, our schedule has been that between Thanksgiving and New Year's, we don't have Wednesday night services because of people traveling and the weather. And Tom and I take advantage of those couple of weeks to go visiting because we have friends at other churches and I actually never get to go to church. And so we're going to take the Wednesdays off between Thanksgiving and New Year's. So what that means is we'll be here tonight, obviously. We'll be here next week, next Wednesday. But then the Wednesday after that is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving and people are already traveling and making their Thanksgiving plans. And then it's just three weeks until it's Christmas, and then a week until it's New Year's, and it's just really hard to gather people on a Wednesday evening in that holiday environment. So we are going to be here tonight and next week, and then you all have your Wednesdays off until the new year. And I will be announcing which Wednesday we will be continuing those services, okay? That's what I'm thinking about doing. Will that make life easier on you? I don't care. It's going to make it easier on me. And so that's, that's the plan. That's what we're going to do. We are in Proverbs chapter 16 tonight. So to begin the evening, I'm going to read from Proverbs chapter 17. And I'm hoping to get all the way to this verse. And this verse kind of seems like the theme for the evening and for this section of chapter 16 that we're going to be reading tonight. Chapter 17, verse 3 says, The refining pot is for silver, and the furnace is for gold. What that means is, if you worked in smelting metals, refining metals, the refining pot is for silver. The whole point is to make purity in silver. And the furnace is for gold. The whole point is to make purity of gold. But the Lord tests the heart. At first glance, it would look like the first half of that sentence and the second half have nothing to do with each other. But what he's really talking about is the refining process. The process that metals go through in order to make a more pure metal is the same process that we as the people of God go through, and God is the refining fire who will purify us through the things that he takes us through. Those things that he takes us through test us and refine us, and the whole time he is reading our hearts. In other words, even if you're struggling in the things that you're going through, and every one of us in this lifetime is going to go through struggles, we're going to go through difficulties, we're going to go through things that really make it hard to hold on to our confidence, to our strength, but God reads the heart. He tests the heart. 
He's not testing you physically to see if you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and make yourself better and get along. He's testing the heart. How is this test going to affect your confidence in him, your trust in him as you go through it? The same way that silver, when it's being refined, has to boil, which means it's not a whole lot of fun for the silver. It's in a pot that's burning, but that burning pot results in refined silver. The same way that a furnace, going into a furnace, not fun, but the furnace is going to refine the gold by the same token The things, the trials, the difficulties, the tribulations of this life that you go through are refining you, and God is refining you that way for the purpose of testing your heart, to see where your confidence is, to see where your faith is, to know what you trust in in this life. While you're going through the difficulties of this life, are you looking toward your own self-made madness? Are you looking toward your own ego, your own self-confidence, your own self-assuredness to get you through it? Or while you're going through these difficulties, are you looking to God to get you through it? I have said many, many times through the years, and yet I'm going to say it again. God knows what it takes to draw you to himself. God knows that when things are good, when things are happy, Bluebird of happiness on your shoulder, and it's all rainbows and kumbaya, life is good. That's not the time that you are crying out to God. If you have a thankful heart, you might thank God for the good things that are coming into your life, but that's not really the trial time. That's not the testing time. The testing time is when things get difficult, and God knows that. He understands that difficulties and trials are the things that will make you demonstrate the sort of person that you are. He knows that if he puts you in a trial, you're more likely to get on your knees in front of him and be dependent on him and call out to him and pray to him and trust that he's going to get you through it because you've come to the end of yourself and you know that you're not going to get yourself through it. So that is the process, according to Solomon, that is the process that God puts God-fearing people through because God will test your heart to find out what your heart is really made of and what your heart is really convinced of, trusting, resting on. That's the process. Let's go back to chapter 16 now, verse 22 And you're going to see why I pointed that verse out first, because Solomon is going to say several things here about your heart. This is all part of that process of God testing the heart and discovering what sort of person you are. Most of what we're going to look at today falls into the very practical category. The beginning of chapter 16 We read a lot of rules and uh, inspired advice that came from King Solomon, such a great king. He could talk about how kings ought to act and the righteousness that was required of kings. That advice, however, is not really universally applicable because none of us have ever been king, unless there's something I don't know about some of you. So that part of it is 
interesting to look at Solomon's advice to being a king, but it's not really practical, everyday living advice for you and I. Everything we're going to look at tonight falls into the category of really practical because it all has to do with who you are, what you're like as a person, and your interpersonal relationships, how you deal with other people and what that demonstrates about you. As always, Solomon is going to start by admonishing people to be wise, to have good understanding. He's been talking about the wisdom of a wise heart and that a person with a wise heart is going to be called a discerning person. He's also said that sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. And right behind that we read verse 22, understanding is a fountain of life to him who has it. Now again, we don't feel the weight of that particular analogy. We don't really go searching for fountains. We just go to the sink, we turn on the tap, or we go to a water fountain, and there's water. That's all we know about water. That's our relationship with water. But in the Middle East 3,000 years ago, water was a very precious commodity. And if you were searching for water, digging for water, looking for water in the desert areas, and you happened upon a spring, that is the difference between life and death. That's the difference between shriveling up or actually living another day. And so when Solomon says that something is a fountain of life, that's what he's describing. It's a wellspring of water that sustains life. And he equates that very important fundamental need of human beings, especially living in a desert area, he equates that with what it is to have actual understanding, actual knowledge, actual wisdom. You can go through this whole life and be a fool. And you're going to end up dying without ever understanding the really important things of life. As a consequence, you never engaged in that fountain of life. Here's what he says about a fool. He says, but the discipline of fools is folly. Now, there's two ways to read that sentence. Both are fairly humorous. One is that it's folly, it's foolishness on your part to discipline a fool. Because fools don't learn. And so no matter how many times you discipline them, no matter how many times you instruct or correct or reprove them, they're not going to learn anything. So after a while, it's just like Solomon saying, don't answer a fool after his folly. There's just the point at which you realize that you're just being foolish in trying to correct the fool and trying to discipline the fool and trying to bring the fool along in the ways of righteousness and wisdom. That's one way to read it. Well, the other way to read it is, but the discipline of fools is folly from the standpoint of a fool. Every time he is disciplined or corrected or reproved, it counts for nothing for him. It doesn't teach him anything. It doesn't improve his life in any way. And so for him, that discipline is, in fact, foolishness. The contrast of verse 22, the contrast of this particular little proverb, is that the understanding person, the intelligent person, the one who pays attention and trusts God, 
the one who pays attention to the word of God, who's wise in heart, the person who is discerning and walks in righteousness and has that highway that Solomon has been talking about so much. That kind of understanding is a fountain of life to him who has it. Why? Because it keeps feeding him, it keeps teaching him, it keeps instructing him, it keeps taking him along through this life and giving him insight and wisdom into the things that are happening to him in his life. On the other hand, you can say all that stuff, you can reprove all that stuff, you can, you can discipline a fool, you can instruct a fool, you can lay all that out in front of a fool, and he's just going to look at you like he just doesn't get it and doesn't want to get it. And so at some point, it's folly for you and it's folly for him because nobody's getting anything out of that conversation. I think it's the same thing that we have all experienced when we've tried to talk to people about the things of God, remembering again that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. We have tried to talk to people about God, about Christ, about the word of God, about about what life is really about, how God is in control and how Jesus actually saves his people, not just theoretically saves his people. You can say those things to some people and It's like the lights go on and everybody's home and they just get it. They just dial with you and they just understand it. But sometimes you can say that kind of stuff because you're trying to instruct them, discipline them, give them understanding. Sometimes you say that to people and they just stare at you. And you can tell they're just not getting it. Even Jesus said there is a point where you have to just shake the dust off your feet and walk away. Even Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine because they're going to trample on your pearls and then turn and tear you. So that means there is a point at which continuing to try to discipline these fools is actually foolishness. Okay, verse 23 then. The heart of the wise teaches his mouth. That is Exactly what Jesus said. Jesus was obviously intimately aware of the things that Solomon taught. Take a look, if you would, uh, Tom, turn to Matthew 12, 34 for a minute. And you're going to hear Jesus say the same thing. The heart of the wise teaches his mouth. In other words, the things you say demonstrate what's really going on inside you. If you walk around all the time yelling at people, unhappy with people, nobody can ever do anything good enough to satisfy you, that's actually saying something about you. That's actually demonstrating what's going on inside you, that you don't have that level of kindness or compassion or understanding that you could allow that maybe somebody might occasionally make a mistake. You're just quick to pounce and you're quick to be angry at them. Well, that says something about you. However, if you're kind to people, uh, I can give you a good example here. You've met David Morris. He's been here several times. He and I were in Texas a couple of years ago, and we decided to go to a local mall there in Dallas. And we were sitting down to eat while we were there. And the waitress came over, said her name, as waitresses are trained to do, came over and said, I'm, for sake of my example, I'm just going to make up a name. 
because I don't remember what her name was, but let's say she came over and said, I'm Debbie, I'll be your waitress today. Well, David, as David always does, struck up a little conversation with her. I was busy ordering, you know, give me some water, come back when you're ready, and I'm going to... But he can't help himself. David never meets strangers. Everybody he meets, he, he talks to. He engages them. And then before we ate, this is the part I want you to tune into, before we ate... We prayed over our food, as is our habit. And in his prayer, as he was praying, he prayed for Debbie. And it struck me in that moment that I would never have thought to do that. It wouldn't have occurred to me that we had just engaged another human being in the course of them doing their job and that we ought to pray for them. So that said a lot to me even though I knew it, but that just said a lot to me about who David was, what's going on in his heart, what kind of person is he. You understand my example? Yes, sir. If you're always mean and belligerent and ugly to people, that says a lot about you. And if you're kind to people, understanding, if you're generous to people, if you're humble around other people, that says a lot about you. Well, Solomon then says, The way you talk, and of course you talk to other people, unless you're just sitting in a room somewhere talking to yourself, you talk to other people. And the things that you say to other people demonstrate to them what's really going on inside you, what's really going on in your heart. If you have a wicked, evil heart, you're going to say wicked, evil things. If you have Christ in your heart, truly have Christ in your heart, that's going to be reflected in the things you say and the way that you speak to other people. Here, we're going to have Tom read it. Jesus himself says this from uh, Matthew 12, 34. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks Talking to the Pharisees, he says, you brood of vipers, how can you be good when you're evil? Because your heart is evil, you're just going to do evil. And then he says, the way you're talking, the things you're saying, the things I'm accusing you of, the things that you're talking about demonstrate that your heart is evil. He's saying the same thing Solomon said. Solomon says that the heart is going to teach the mouth. It's going to teach the mouth how to speak. And the heart of the wise teaches the mouth how to speak wisdom. The second half of that proverb says, and it adds persuasiveness to his lips. Now, persuasiveness may be a good translation, maybe not. Uh, Several other translations, I think, more conducive with what the the, uh, Hebrew word is, say it adds learning to his lips. In other words, because he has wisdom in his heart, that instructs his mouth. So if you are to listen to him, you're going to learn something. Because learning is going to come from his lips because that's what's in his heart. Wisdom, understanding. So I would think the general rule here is listen to smart people. Listen to people who are wise, people who have understanding People who know a thing or two about the word of God. Those are the people that you really ought to be paying attention to and listening to. Verse 24. Pleasant words 
are a honeycomb. Okay, we have to talk about a couple aspects of that. First off, pleasant words is not the same Hebrew word that we just saw a moment ago as pleasant. So some translations say delightful. Delightful, happy words, good words that you say to people. In fact, in the second half of that proverb, it says they are sweet, sweet words. These kind of sweet and delightful and pleasant words are like a honeycomb. Now, what's a honeycomb? Honeycomb is the place that bees are making honey. And modern science, modern medicine, has discovered that there are healing properties to honey, especially if you can get it without any kind of additives, get it before the companies get to it. If you, if you can get to real, genuine honey in a honeycomb, there are a lot of really good medicinal properties to that. Solomon seems to know that because he says those kinds of delightful words are a honeycomb. It is sweet to the soul, and it is healing to the bones. So he has just said a honeycomb brings about healing to your bones the same way that good words do. If you say good words to people, if you encourage people, he says that's like a honeycomb. That brings a sweetness to their soul and healing to their bones. Have you ever been going through a struggle, going through a trial, going through a difficulty? I can think of several times in my life where this has happened to me, where somebody called me, somebody I didn't expect who knew I was going through the trial, and just the very fact that they took the time out and said some encouraging, kind words to me was enough to make me think, okay, it's not that bad, I'm going to get through it. And, uh, and I didn't even know they cared. Oh, I'm so glad they called. Because those kind of delightful words, those kinds of pleasant words, are actually sweet to the soul. They actually make you feel good. That's one of the reasons that uh, pretty much everybody that I encounter these days, especially after the thing with David a few years ago, pretty much everybody that I encounter, whether it's a checkout person or whether it's somebody selling shoes or the other day it just happened to be the garbage man in front of my house. Whenever you're encountering people, I like to remind myself that this is another human being. Pay attention to them. Or here, I'll put it this way to you. Since I'm telling stories about my preacher friends, I'll tell you this one. Barney Johnson, who you know, who's been here before, he was telling me a story one time about how he was walking through a mall with Elder Ward. And of course, if you've ever gone anywhere with Elder Ward, you know that you can't get anywhere because Elder just doesn't hurry. And so they got to the mall. Barney knew exactly what he wanted to get. He knew exactly where the store was. And so he was shopping the way men shop, Mm -hmm. which is I've gone to the shop to get a thing. I know where it is. I'm going to go get it. I'm not going to try things on. I'm not going to window shop. I'm going to go buy a thing. Mm -hmm. And so Barney is just cutting through the mall, making a beeline toward what he wants. And he said, I had to keep stopping and turning around because Elder just doesn't hurry. So I kept waiting and waiting on Elder. And finally, Elder said to him, Barney, slow down. He said, you see that man over there with that broom? He might need to talk to you, but he can't catch you. Well, that's a perspective that Elder Ward carried with him all the time. I remember being at a, uh, 
a Shoney's one time. David and I and a couple other people and Elder Ward. And when we got done eating, the rest of us were out in the parking lot when we realized that he wasn't with us. We went back into Shoney's, and there was this very large extended table with families all around it eating, and he was going around the outside of the table speaking to each person and laying hands on children and talking to people, and we all just kind of stood there and waited. People were just thrilled, just so happy to have him in their midst, and he always had good words and kind, uplifting things to say to people. And when he came outside, I said, did you know them? Is that what happened? Do you know them? And he said, not a single one. No, I didn't know any of them. Mm. You see, he made a practice of speaking kindly to people. And when I would watch people react to him, it was like sweetness to their soul. It was good for them. So I think, I said all that and gave you those examples of stories in order to say, I think that's what Solomon is getting at. That ought to be, as part of our wisdom in learning, we ought to recognize when we're in the presence of another creature that God made, another human being. We shouldn't look down on people because of their status or their money or their job. or their, There's really no reason to be unkind to other people. And when you're kind to them, when you're encouraging to them when you say delightful words to them they just light up and it's sweet to their soul verse 25 we've looked at this already in previous weeks there is a way that seems right to a man but the end is the way of death that is an exact quote from chapter 14 12 as well so this is a proverb that solomon repeated a couple of times, meaning it was important to him, and he wanted people to understand that there is a way that seems right to people, because people have this remarkable ability to justify themselves. And whatever way they live, whatever way they go, however they conduct themselves, they have the ability to think they're right. Yes, I ought to be like this. But that way, which seems right to a man, remember, it is God that tests the heart. The end of that way is death. The end of that way is judgment from God. Verse 26 actually has a little bit of wordplay in it that I do enjoy. A worker's appetite works for him. If you're a worker, you work for somebody. A worker works for someone. He has a boss. But then Solomon's bit of wordplay is that a man who's hungry, a man's appetite, works for him. So he's working for his boss, but his appetite, his desire to eat, works for him. In what way does it work for him? Well, he explains it. His hunger urges him on. In other words... You can sit at home and do nothing and be lazy, and then eventually you're going to run out of money, and then you're going to run out of food. And so that desire to get food, that desire to make some money to get food, that desire to go to work so that you can satisfy your hunger is actually working for you because it's making you productive. It's inspiring you to get up from where you were and go do the work, even as you're working. If you feel a little bit hungry while you're working, your hunger urges you to keep going, keep going, keep going, because you're looking forward to getting paid. 
and looking forward to the end of the day. So that's a very practical little proverb there. A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. Now we're going to turn the corner and start talking about worthless, perverse people. Mm. Starting in verse 27, that proverb says, A worthless man digs up evil. Worthless man, valueless. A man who adds nothing to any group or any conversation. He has no actual worth. That kind of worthless man who Solomon sees as intrinsically lazy and evil, that kind of man will only get busy if he's digging up dirt on somebody else. A worthless man digs up evil. He's not willing to just let evil lie. He's not willing to let it just be bygones and bygones. He feels it's necessary to constantly dig up evil on other people. And his words are a scorching fire. Now, here's the contrast I want you to see. The words of a worthless man are a scorching fire. Delightful words are like a honeycomb. See the difference? Mm -hmm. Solomon, again, is talking about your mouth, how you use your mouth, how you use your tongue, what you say to people, how you uh, address people. Are you encouraging people? Are you lifting people up? Are you being sweet to their soul? Are you bringing healing to their bones? Are you, are you saying good things to people? Or are you digging up slander? Are you digging up evil? Are you digging up lies? Are you digging up gossip? In that case, the words that come from your mouth are a scorching fire. It's the same thing that James says. We won't look it up tonight because we've looked it up in previous weeks. James has a lot to say about how the tongue sets all kinds of things afire. The tongue can do all kinds of damage, and the tongue can do all kinds of good. And with the very same tongue that you use to glorify God, the very same tongue that you speak to your heavenly Father with, with that very same tongue, you go out into the world and you do all kinds of damage. You're burning things down. You're causing all kinds of pain with the things that you say and how you say it. And that, says James, that shouldn't be. That's not the way it should be. Decide which team you're on. Decide which side you're on. You're either on the side of God and goodness and righteousness and wisdom, and then you use your tongue accordingly because that's what's in your heart, or stop pretending. And you're going to go out in the world, and you're going to do all kinds of damage, and you're going to hurt all kinds of people, and you're going to dig up all kinds of evil because that's what's really in your heart. A worthless man digs up evil while his words are as a scorching fire. Verse 28, a perverse man spreads strife. A perverse man, a man who is going backwards, a man who is looking constantly for some immorality, a way to criticize other people, put other people down, that kind of perverse man only spread strife. Okay, so as we were reading that proverb, how many of you thought of somebody? Yeah, because we all know people like that. We all know people who do nothing but slander. People who do nothing but gossip. 
people who do nothing but hurt other people and spread strife, contention, people being upset. And one of their favorite ways to do that, one of their favorite ways to spread contention is to start gossiping, start tailbearing, and start separating friends. That's what the second half of that verse says. Verse 28, the second half says, a slanderer, somebody who puts other people down, somebody who lies on other people and says terrible things about other people, that kind of perverse man, separates intimate friends. And that's his goal because he's always digging for something evil. And when he sees people that are intimately friendly with each other, he can't wait to just break that up, get them each separate and say, hey, you know what he said about you? Here, let me show you what the result of that is. Look at chapter 18, verse 19 for a second. A brother offended, so a friend, a brother, a close compatriot, who's been offended, in in the case of chapter 17, it's because they heard something slanderous from the slanderer. So you're offended against your friend, and a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. Solomon knows, as a king who would go to war, he knows how difficult it is to defeat a city with walls and bars and gates. And he knows that's a really contentious war he's going to get into. And he says, and a brother, a friend, here, I'll put it this way. Have you ever been made aware that somebody you thought was your friend was saying something bad about you, said something bad about your kids, or they said something evil about your mate, or they said something about the way you work, or your they, they just say something about, he's got a face only a mother could love, and his mother probably finds it hard. One of those kinds of things, you know, just... Your mother dresses you funny and you're stupid. And, you know, you find out that a friend, somebody you trusted, somebody... Here, I'll I'll go a step further. Somebody who you thought you could trust and you told them an intimate secret and then it gets back to you from some third party and you realize that the person you trusted couldn't be trusted. That hurts, doesn't it? I mean, to be undermined by a friend... I've had it happen, sadly, several times in my life. And then that person comes around like, hey, buddy, how's everything? I'm your friend, right? It's so hard to trust them. It's so hard to tell them anything. It's really hard for them to win you over again. Well, that's what Solomon's saying here. It's true now, and it was true back then when Solomon wrote it. A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And contentions, difficulties between you, arguments between you, difficulties between you. You find out they said something about you to somebody else or they, or they told someone your secret or whatever else. So now you have this contention between you. He says those kind of contentions between brothers are like strong bars on a castle. If you're trying to storm a castle and you think, I, I got to get in this castle in order to overthrow it, and you get to the window, and there's strong bars on it, he says, that's exactly what it's like when you have contention between a brother and a brother. If you have somebody who's just a passing acquaintance, who you generally don't trust anyway, 
who you don't really know all that well, and you find out that they said something about you later, you're not really all that hurt by it because you don't really know them that well. And you can say, well, they don't know me that well. But when it's a friend, when it's a brother, when it's somebody you trust, and then they hurt you, they let you down, they spread gossip about you, they tell your secrets, that hurts. Am I telling the truth? Yes. Yes. That stings when that happens. So Solomon says, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and contentions are like bars of a castle. Okay, back to chapter 16. A perverse man spreads strife. A slanderer separates intimate friends. That's his whole goal, is to separate the intimate friends because once he's got them at contention with each other, it's going to be really difficult for them to get back to being friends again. See how that all works? Solomon knows a lot about interpersonal relationships. Verse 29 is about a man of violence. So far we've seen a worthless man and a perverse man and a slanderer, a man of violence. A man who wants to fight, who wants to hurt, who wants to be physical, who wants to do violence to people. It's almost like the phrase, misery loves company. Mm -hmm. People who are violent, people who are mean, want you to also be violent and mean because that makes them feel better about their own violence and meanness. Mm -hmm. Power in numbers. They feel less guilty about their own perversity if they can find other people like themselves. And so they're going to try to entice you to be like them. Solomon says that a man of violence entices his neighbor because he wants somebody else to make him feel less separate, less individual, less alone in his violence. A man of violence entices his neighbor and he leads his neighbor in a way That is not good. I love the simplicity of that phrase. It's a way that is not good. We read earlier that there is a way that seems right to a man. A way, a style of life, a way of walking. He says there is a way that is just not good. There's no righteousness in it. There's no uplifting. There's no positive attributes that you can name to that way. It's just simply not good. And a man of violence will entice his neighbor to go be part of that not goodness. So then verse 30, along the same lines, he who winks his eyes does so to devise some perverse thing. We're talking about perverse people. We're talking about people who will wink at you in order to make a little plan. Okay, we're going to go get him, we're going to trip him up, and we're going to rob him. Okay, wink, wink. And so Solomon says, a man who winks his eyes does so to devise perverse things, corrupt things, evil things, violent things. And he who compresses his lips brings evil to pass. Now, I don't know if I can demonstrate what that would look like, but... (laughs) But you know, it's basically putting your lips together. So you got somebody who's putting his lips together and then gives you. You know 
he's up to no good. You know that facial expression right there is we're up to no good, whatever this is. Let's go do it. He who winks his eyes does so to devise perverse things. He who compresses his lips brings evil to pass. Verse 31. This is talking about growing to old age. I believe that the King James says a hoary head, which just means a whited head. A gray head, according to the NASB, is a crown of glory. And all that means is if you've lived long enough that your hair has changed color, if you've had such a long life that you're going gray or or your hair is turning white, that's a blessing from God that you have lived that long. It's like a crown of glory on your head. Now pay attention to this for a moment because the Bible says that old people, that'd be my gang, I don't have the whited head. I have the no hair head. So I got it going down here. See, that's, that's the reason for the beard. There you go. And that is my head too, isn't it? Wow, you run rings around me logically. A white head, an older person, somebody who has lived a long life, actually knows a lot of stuff, actually has accumulated a lot of knowledge, and has been blessed by God to live that long life, and his white hair sits like a crown of glory on his head, and it is found in the way of righteousness. In other words, if you walk through this life righteously, if you conduct your way in righteousness, that's going to lead to having old age. That's going to lead to having white hair. And yet, the society that we live in today is all about youth. It's all about the kids. What about the children? It's let's lower the vote to 14. It's, it's all about the kids. What do the kids say? What does generation XYZ think? And the Bible says just the opposite of that. The Bible says that actual wisdom, genuine wisdom, belongs to the person who has lived a long time and like a crown of their righteous life, God gives them a white head, a a head of white hair. So the Bible again says just the opposite. Solomon again says just the opposite of what the world today thinks. It is yet again another demonstration of how corrupt this world has become as it continues down this godless path. But for those of you who are following the ways of God, pay attention to the fact that it says, people who have lived a long time know stuff. If you want to know stuff, if you want to learn stuff, if you want to hear about righteousness, if you want to hear about wisdom, if you want to know what the good way of living is, talk to somebody who's done it. These days, we're being told that people who have done it ought to pay more attention to the people who aren't even out of the starting gate yet. People who have no life experience. Those are the people we're supposed to go, what do you think? Those people don't have any experiential knowledge of what life really is. A gray head, a white head of hair. It's like a crown of glory. And that's found in the way of the righteous. Verse 32, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit is better than he that captures a city. 
If you're a mighty person, if you're a valiant man, then you could go capture a city for your king. Valiant, mighty men were very important to any kingdom. And yet Solomon says, the person who is slow to anger is better than the mighty man. It is true in Solomon's time as a king. He had to deal with lots of mighty men, but he also had to deal with a lot of self-willed, arrogant people. And he had to deal with a lot of people who couldn't control themselves. And he says it is better to be slow to anger. This is a character of wise people. I think in weeks past I have said, before you give an answer, stop and count to ten. Be patient. Be cautious. Be slow to anger. I don't want to keep getting political here or just keep saying because it's too easy. I don't want to keep saying, but the world we live in today... But it's just a fact that the world we live in today, anger, I'm upset, I'm not happy, I'm not satisfied, you have offended me, I have a right just because I'm born to never be offended, that pervades the society that we live in. People feel like their anger is a self-righteous anger and that they ought to be able to go off on you at any time for any reason. Again, just the opposite of what the Bible has to say. The Bible says he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his own spirit. You know what that phrase means? Rules his own spirit. It means rules his own inner man. Rules his own temperament. Rules his own emotions. The person who doesn't fly off the handle, the person who can take the time and be patient before he answers back to people in his self-righteous anger, the person who can actually control his emotions to the point where he's not just running around doing damage everywhere he goes, that man is better than a mighty man who captured a city. Solomon would rather be surrounded by people who know themselves and who are able to control themselves than mighty men who can capture cities. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I think every one of us, though as I pointed out at the beginning of this evening that none of us have ever been king, I think we also would rather be around somebody who is slow to anger and who rules his own spirit. Somebody who has the ability to control their own temperament. You ever been around somebody who will just go off on you for no reason? Yeah, Yeah, isn't that fun? (laughs) No matter what you do, never happy, never satisfied, never grateful, and so full of themselves that they think you deserve to stand there and put up with their onslaught against you constantly. Oh, those are such fun people to be around. But he who is slow to anger is better than a mighty man. And he who rules his spirit is better than he that captures a city. Finally, verse 33, it looks like we're not going to get as far as I hoped, but at least we've gotten to the end of the chapter. Verse 33, we looked at it last week. The lot is cast into the lap and it's every decision is from the Lord. Last week, we talked a little bit about what the lot is. Let's see if I can describe it a bit more. In the giving of the law and in the instructions for the high priest, one of the things that the high priest used to carry with them, something that was bestowed to the high priest and to nobody else, were two objects called the Urim and the Thummim. 
Nobody knows what that was. But we do know what it was used for. It was used to discover the will of God. And so people have speculated that what it was was maybe just two pieces of wood or metal or whatever else that were sort of plus and minus on each side and that you would cast it to the ground the same way you would toss a couple of coins to the ground and see which way they come up, the same way that we today flip a coin and let it fall on the ground to see if it's going to be heads or tails. Maybe that's what the thummim and the urim were all about. We don't really know what they looked like. They've been lost to antiquity, but we know what they did. They helped the high priest understand the will of God for any particular moment. Well, Solomon, being a judge, is also required to judge according to the righteousness of God. And at the beginning of this chapter, he talked about the requirements to use his lips to say things to make judgments that were divine judgments. And perhaps part of the way that he made these divine judgments was by using a similar device. It would have been a lot that he would cast into the lap. We don't know what it looks like, but he would cast it into his lap in order to determine what was the will of God because he knew that when he did that, the whole disposing of the lot was up to God. Look at chapter 18, verse 18. This will maybe give a little more substance to what I've just said. If there is contention, if there's strife, if there's difficulty between two people and Solomon would have to judge between them, it says in verse 18, he would use the lot. The lot puts an end to contentions. So if two people are arguing, Solomon could say, we'll leave it up to God. Let's cast the lot. And whatever the lot says, that's the determination of God. The lot puts an end to contentions And it decides between the mighty. So even if you've got two mighty men at contention with each other, two powerful men, two princes who are at odds with each other, and they come to the king and says, decide between us. We have to have an answer to this contention. Solomon says that the lot will answer it. So whatever the lot was, it appeared to be a device that Solomon used in order to leave things up to God. Now, in order for him to do that, in order for him to be willing to decide, to adjudicate between two warring parties, in order for him to adjudicate by something apparently random, just casting a lot, he had to be convinced that in the sovereignty of God, that lot was going to come up the way that God decided it was going to come up. The same way that the high priest had to believe that the Urim and the Thummim were going to tell him what God decided. So in the most small detailed version of it, we could say, well, when it came to casting a lot as a king in order to determine adjudications between people who were at contention with each other, Solomon was convinced that God had sovereign control over that kind of lot casting. But then, of course, we can expand that theologically if we know that God is truly genuinely sovereign and that there's not a random cell or a random atom anywhere in his universe that he doesn't control. Then you start seeing things like Jesus saying, look at the sparrows. 
Two of them are sold for a farthing and one of them can't fall out of the sky without your father. The implication is without your father's permission, without your father's knowledge, he has to allow that bird to fall or that bird's not going to fall. Look at the grass. Look at the lilies of the field. Solomon, Jesus brings up Solomon. Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And then he says, if, if God would so clothe the grass, isn't he going to take care of you? So Jesus based your confidence, your faith in God on the knowledge of his sovereignty over falling birds and grass, which means that God has to be in complete control of falling birds and grass and tornadoes and windstorms and and atomic reactions and black holes everything it's impossible to draw the line where you say okay god is sovereign over everything up to here and then anything below this line you can do whatever you want below this line because he's only sovereign up to here you can't draw that line especially if you're talking about birds and grass again So Jesus' examples, Solomon's example, shows that in the end, if we're just talking about Israel and the king of Israel, in the end, God was still in control of Israel because he was deciding these things based on the casting of even lots and deciding who was going to be king and imposing his law on them. He's in charge. He's the king. He's sovereign over all of them. But then you get to the New Testament and you get Jesus saying essentially the same thing, that God is sovereign over all the stuff, all the details, all the little things. As you look at the whole Bible from beginning to end, you see prophecy. And I promise I'm going to let you go now. But the Bible is chock full of prophecy. And to my way of thinking, prophecy demonstrates the absolute sovereign control that God has better than just about anything else in the Bible. Because if the future is not definite, if people can do whatever they want by their own choice and free will, if God is not sovereign over every little detail, then prophecy can't work. Things that do actually occur in history that we can look at, like naming Cyrus 150 years in advance of him even becoming king. That can't happen if all the people who lived in that 150 years could have done whatever they wanted. God is sovereign. That's all I'm getting at. So whether you're talking about the huge things, this is my micro-macro thing, whether we're talking about the huge things like what human beings do over the course of hundreds and thousands of years, or whether we're talking about the smallest things like birds and grass and casting lots, regardless of what you're looking at, every time you see the same theme, which is God is sovereign. God's in charge. God's in control. That, by the way, is awfully, awfully good news. Because if he's absolutely sovereign and can do whatever he wants, and he wants to save you, well, then there's nothing you can do to mess that up. He's sovereign. He's in charge. He can save you if he wants to save you. And the events of your life, no matter how difficult, the trials of your life, no matter how they may shake you or try your faith, in the end, you're going to be refined like silver. You're going to be refined like gold, which is where we started tonight. Because God, who is sovereign, isn't going to lose you 
He's going to teach you. He's going to instruct you. He's going to purify you. He's going to raise you up to the person that he has decided you're going to be. You understand? Yep. Yep. All right, good. Then I'm done. Are there questions? The casting of the lot requires an acknowledgement of a higher power. Oh, yeah. That higher power is God or God and his fleshly king saying that it's done. Because the contenders merely talk between themselves and flip the coin. The loser says, no, I'm not going to do it. And who's going to back it up? So without God, the whole thing falls apart. Right. Just like creation. (laughs) Just like creation. Without God, the whole thing falls apart. Anything else? Um, when somebody does something, when I do something nice for someone and they say thank you, I'm trying to train myself not to say you're welcome, but to say you are so worth it. Because I, I just feel like anytime we get a chance to build somebody up, yeah. we should. Also, my husband has unprocessed honey for sale. <laughs> has what? Unprocessed Honey for sale. Oh, unprocessed honey for sale. Okay, I got you now. I thought you were explaining that he had a disease. No. You talked so quietly. He has unprocessed honey for sale. And I went, he's got what? Oh, okay. He's got unprocessed honey for sale. I didn't even realize that I was helping you market tonight. I didn't even realize. Well, very good. By the way, since you said that about saying thank you, it's one of the things I like most about Chick-fil-A is that their employees across the board are taught that when you say thank you to them, what do they say back? My pleasure. My pleasure. Isn't that interesting? They don't say you're welcome, which would put it on you. They say my. They personalize it. Thank you. My pleasure. It is my pleasure to serve you. I enjoy what I'm doing. I am gratified by being able to do this for you. I just like that answer so much that I try not to sound like a Chick-fil-A employee, and yet I say that to people all the time. I just like that answer. Anything else? Okay, so that's it for questions. Now we can turn to Steve. Comments? We learned that on Sunday. I was just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> of course you were. <laughs> it makes me feel better to know that almost invariably, if I play a game with my wife involving dice, she wins. God wants her to win. That's right. Apparently that is the case. God is on her side. And if God be for you, <laughs> he can't be against you. So there you go. The lot that is cast on the table. Yeah. There you go. Say goodbye to the internet people. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.